Well, it's my pleasure to introduce this morning a, a mate of mine, Mark Scandrett, who is right here. Come on up, Mark. Um, Mark is visiting us from the US of A, uh, San Francisco, but I'll let him share a little bit about that. And, and obviously, as you know how we work, Mark will leave here after his message to head up to Tumby to deliver that. But can I invite you back this evening to um, be with Mark again for, for a different message as he continues to bless our community. But thanks for being here, mate, and over to you. All right. Good morning, everyone. Hey, so great to be here at Coast Community Church this morning. Uh, when I walked in, a couple of people quickly made comments about my glasses, like cool glasses right on. And uh, I have a style icon uh, by the name of Andrew Renucci. <laughs> who uh, taught me everything I know about dressing and wearing glasses. Uh, Not really. Those are actually my glasses in the picture. He's wearing them. Um, I work with an organization in San Francisco called Reimagine that I helped co-found about 20 years ago. And um, we are passionate about helping people put the teachings of Christ, apply the teachings of Christ to everyday life. So the things I'm going to share with you today uh, come from that work and from uh, uh, my life and uh, the life of our family. And a couple of books that I'm going to be kind of talking from that I've written that are available here today. One's called Practicing the Way of Jesus. And the other one that specifically looks at time, money, and meaning is called Free. Spending your time and money on what matters most. Um, I said I kissed my wife goodbye this morning because she's off to the Sydney airport. We've been traveling here in Australia for the last five weeks. And she's going home today. And I've got one more week before I go home and... uh, Reunite with our adult kids. We've got three, three kids who are 25, 24, and 22, Haley, Noah, and Isaiah. And we all live together in an old Victorian in San Francisco's Mission District, where we've lived now for 21 years. And um, I think if you ask my kids, actually, I was asking Andrew, Andrew's kids this morning, um, uh, McInnes's kids, uh, is your, your dad's one of the coolest guys I've ever met. Is that true? You know, like, what's it like having such a cool dad? And um, I think if you asked my kids what they think of me, they would say, um, our dad is kind of odd, but also kind of cool. Anybody with me there that, like, the, the, a parent you grew up with, that's kind of, the, you know, like, kind of two things. They're odd and cool. And that's a bit like I felt in the family that I grew up in. We were that oddly simple family back in the 1970s when most people were moving out of urban areas into more suburban areas and exurbs, um, our family made the unlikely choice to stay living in a small house in a city called Minneapolis. And we were that family that, um, oh, there we go. (laughs) We were that family who uh, had the old car. In fact, we got a little fender bender and took a, a two-liter bottle, a soda bottle, and uh, that was our um, that was the replacement for the front blinker uh, on our car. I was that kid with the high what, what we in America we call high water jeans. You know the ones that are too short because they were hand me downs, and the brown bag lunch that I took to school, and so. Um, some, there were some challenges to being in this oddly simple family, but also some really amazing and beautiful things. My dad made the choice to work a job that would allow him to be home every day by 4.15. And so I have a load of memories from growing up of really precious times around the dinner table every single evening. Um, great times reading scripture and talking about it, or a classic book around the dinner table. Walks along the Mississippi River in the summer 
volleyball in the backyard. So there were some advantages to being part of this oddly simple family. Uh, um, we had a very small house, though. And one of the biggest challenges was um, the fact that I had three sisters, six members of the family, lots of house guests, and it only had one bathroom. Is there anyone else uh, like me who grew up in a, in a house with only one bathroom? All right, a lot. Wow, a lot more than in the United States. So um, if you know about this, uh, just for those of you who, who grew up with multiple bathrooms, you have to get real creative about this. And at my house, it looked like uh, one person in the shower, maybe another person on the toilet, and a third person brushing their teeth at the sink. And you just hope that if you were the person on the toilet, you didn't brush up against the legs of the person standing and brushing their teeth. And we got really good at averting our eyes because it was mixed gender. So when I was a, a young teenager, my father came home from work one day, and he said, uh, Mark and the family, uh, I, I've been offered a significant promotion like, it would be the equivalent of, let's say, 50,000 Australian dollars per year in today's money. And he said, um, he said, but the catch is, we're going to have to move every three years to a different city. And um, my family talked about it, we prayed about it, and we, made, we felt like the, the best choice was to, yes, go ahead and take that promotion. And in a matter of just a, a couple of years, we went from that being that oddly simple family that had to, had to get by on, on, on less to a family that had more. And uh, we moved from, three years later, we moved from that tiny house in Minneapolis to a large house in the country in uh, the state of Alabama. And suddenly we had all kinds of room. And it came with a, room, a whole room just for a pool table, vaulted ceilings, uh, a, a great in-ground swimming pool with a diving board and a slide, a two-acre lawn that I had the privilege of mowing with a push mower. And it, made, it was made easier by jumping in the pool you know, every hour and getting cooled down before I had to push the mower more. So there's a lot of great things about this new life that we had. We, um, we went from one car to three cars because we're living out in the country and everybody needs to get places. Suddenly, we had our first computer. It was a Tandy 1000 by Radio Shack. You know about this, don't you? It had a double floppy drive. So anybody under 40 here, let me just explain. Computers didn't used to have hard drives, and you'd have to stick these floppy disks in. But ours was a double one, right? So we could run a program and save things. It was amazing. New sound systems, uh, better clothes than I'd ever been able to wear before, a whole new house full of um, uh, new, new furniture and things like that. And our, our family was passionate about hospitality, so this became a great place I could, uh, to have people over. I could have the, my, the whole senior class of my high school over for a party at my house around the swimming pool. And we really used it for, for those things. It was really terrific. Um, there, was, there was a few challenges, though. Um, we weren't used to having to travel so far to get places, so there was, there was an hour or two a day of needing to be in the car, particularly for my dad, who had to commute about an hour and 15 minutes uh, uh, a day, sometimes an hour and a half. And his work, um, it paid more, but also had more responsibility and a lot more stress. And there were less and less, my dad would come home later, and there was less and less of those great family discussions. Less and less family walks. 
my dad would often come home exhausted and after dinner quietly sneak off to his, uh, to his bedroom. And um, when, I was, when I was 18 or so, um, my dad and I were talking. I was interested in getting engaged to my long-term girlfriend, Lisa, who I've been married to now for 27 years. And um, I, said, um, I said, I'm thinking about asking her to marry me. And my dad said, Mark, I've got a little bit of advice for you. Before you decide to um, like invite somebody else into your life, you should really think about what you want to be about and get, get some clarity about that. He said, all I knew when I was your age is that I was in love with this girl. I didn't know what I was going to do for work or where we were going to live or anything like that. It was kind of an unstable time during the Vietnam era in the United States. And um, pretty soon, the kids are, we've got kids and we've got bills to pay. And I've ended up spending my life doing work that I didn't find particularly meaningful. And my life has been meaningful in other ways. Uh, our family, our faith community, ways that I can serve. But, I, but I, I wish for something better for you, that you could really think about what, what it is that makes you come alive and how that's part of what God's doing in the world and, and make that the primary thing that drives your life. So um, I took some time to start to think about his questions, and I could finally have some solitude to think about this because this new house had not one, not two, not three, but four bathrooms. And so I had some throne time to consider this, some walks in the Alabama woods, and I um, started asking some questions. Who am I and why am I here? And what is it that makes life meaningful? And how can I spend my time and money on the things that matter most? Well, because I was dating Lisa, I wasn't asking these questions by myself. And Lisa and I started to name some of the things that matter most to us. And we eventually came up with uh, five statements uh, about this. We said, we want to love the creator and creation. We want to nurture healthy family dynamics. We want to offer hospitality and care, especially to those who suffer and struggle. And we want to use our gifts to serve. And we want to live simply, gratefully, and creatively. We were pretty excited about being able to name what matters most to us. And if you've never done this, I'd encourage you to do it with the people in your life. Um, because once uh, these things are deep in our hearts, but if, if we aren't able to articulate them with one another, they can't be a guide to decision making. And so after doing this, we started looking around and wondering, who, who, it, who do we know? Or uh, like, how would you actually get to the, these things? I think most of us have these deep longings in our hearts. But as we go through life, it gets harder and harder to live out of that higher vision and we, it, we're tempted to focus just on the everyday things, the to-do list and, um, and the demands of life. And I got the sense then, and I still have this sense now, that if we don't make ch- conscious choices about time and money, the forces of a consumptive and materialistic culture will make most of our decisions for us. In our culture, we don't have to be trained to think materially and consumptively. It's sort of the air that we, um, we breathe in, in Western culture, that we have this mentality of more, bigger, and better. And I suspect that it actually comes from uh, a real soul wound that we have inside of us, that we don't feel whole, we live with a lot of anxiety, and we're looking desperately for something that can make us feel at peace and whole. And scripture has some really um, 
really fascinating things to teach us about how to live well with time and money. And at that time, um, there was a few texts that really spoke to me about this. And one of them was a place in Luke where Jesus said, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. It's not what we can own that really gives us the satisfaction that we're created for. In fact, some people um, have told me, you know, sometimes the things that we own actually own us uh, because they take so much time and energy to maintain. Um, some of us, uh, you know, I, and I would include myself in this, I kind of pat my, myself on the back and say, you know, I'm not into a lot of material possessions. I've been living out of a small suitcase for the last five weeks, you know, like, um, and um, especially in urban areas like where I live, a lot of younger people, and um, the research suggests this too, that um, some of us are moving from being materially consumptive to experience consumptive, like, um, that maybe I don't want a big house or the car or whatever, um, but I want to have lots of awesome experiences. I want, I want that amazing smashed avocado breakfast so good that I can take pictures of it, and I, I want to go on these exotic vacations. And even if, it's less, if there's less stuff collecting, it's still being driven from this heart that says, life's not good as it is. More, bigger, and better is where it'll be at for me. And even for me as well, I think it's not, it's not even always more consumptive experiences. It's just that, um, that fundamental longing for more, bigger, better, more chances to, to speak, more influence in the world. Um, it, it can't be just as it is. It's got to be growing all of the time. Uh, Jesus had an, another thing to say about um, this part of our lives in uh, Matthew 6, where he said, do not worry about your life. Is there anybody uh, besides me here this morning who at times struggles with worry or anxiety? Can I see a show of hands? All right. Jesus promises us a kind of life that can be free of worry, anxiety, where you can sleep at night and not wake up in the morning in panic about the things in our lives, that um, we're made to live with a sense that our creator is with us and can be with us through whatever we may experience in our lives. And another thing it seems like Jesus is suggesting in this text is that he's saying, don't, don't wake up every day thinking about just your to-do list. You're made for a bigger and a higher purpose. You're to be joining me in the remaking of creation that Jesus often called the kingdom of God that is at hand. And so rather than just thinking about that, 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 that task list, um, um, be animated in your activities each day by the chance that you get to participate in what God is doing in the world. And then this is a fascinating one from the Apostle Paul. He's writing to his young Padawan, his young apprentice, Timothy. And he says, Timothy, here's how we should think about money and material possessions. If we have food and if we have clothes, let's be good with that. Wow. So I'm looking out this morning, and I'm noticing every single person in this room has clothes on. And that's probably a good thing, because only 2% of us look, look as good without our clothes as with the clothes on, right? So we got that taken care of, and I'm guessing that, um, that, at, that you probably, if you were hungry this morning, you were able to get some food, 
and that you're probably looking forward to having some food later in the day. There might be some food in your home, in the refrigerator. Uh, I was even offered a little bit of uh, a snack when I got in the door here today, so there's even food available here. You don't have to wait. Um, So we have these basic things that we need taken care of. And Paul's perspective was, now that if those basic needs are taken care of, now let's live out of how can we be part of God's remaking? How can we give our lives away for the sake of the greater good? Which is just a fascinating perspective of of deep satisfaction with what Creator provides for us. And so I think we're invited to ask the question, and I've been asking this question a long time, what is a right-sized life? The right amount of activities, the right amount of time working, the right amount of time with those you love, the right amount of time for sleep, the right, um, the right amount of material possessions, the, the, the right amount of space, the right amount of, of spending and, um, and consumption in our lives. And we're challenged to ask this question, not just for ourselves, but what's the right size life that we could live so that most people on the planet, or all people on the planet, could have what they need to, to thrive in life. So around the, uh, the time that I was doing this reflection with Lisa and looking through the scriptures on this, we decided to, do, uh, to launch what we called a radical contentment experiment. It had five aspects to it that we felt like we wanted to try and have our lives shaped by these things we were noticing as themes in the scriptures. And it's proved to be now a 28-year experiment that we've been sharing. And I can tell you, so far, it's going pretty good. Um, And uh, as I go through this, you might notice you've tried on some of these things shaped by what scripture has to say about time and money as well. Uh, The first part of it for us has been We want to be grateful and content and embrace voluntary limits to consumption. I realized in in the culture that I I was raised in, this mentality of more, bigger, and better, I would be tempted to always be thinking about the next level of things. Uh, the, the uh, the, The better housing I could get, the better clothes I could buy, the better vehicle or transportation I could have, the more luxurious and exotic vacation that I could go on. And that it would feel, it could feel like an arms race, like when is enough enough? And um, so as a young person, we said, what if we just said what we have now is good and we're not going to spend our heart energy pining for or longing for the more than what we have right now? What if we could just be grateful for what we've received right now? And whenever I've um, adopted this posture of contentment, and maybe you've noticed this for yourself, anything that comes to you, you're able to uh, embrace, appreciate, enjoy, and be grateful for, and it almost feels like a luxury. But whenever I adopt this posture of discontentment, and I said, I cannot be satisfied unless I get to that thing that I want, I live in, in sort of a, um, def- a deflated sense of things and with a little bit of resentment and bitterness um, of not having that thing that I was hanging my identity or my happiness on. Uh, a second part of this for us is we said we want to live by a spending plan and it, whenever possible avoid debt. Uh, you and I both live in cultures that are debt-based societies where instead of waiting for the things that we desire, we are able to borrow money 
to get those things that make us slaves to the people that we borrowed that from until we're able to pay it off. And um, we've had a few things uh, happening that have happened in, in, uh, in the global economy that has sort of corrected us on this at times. It looks like from the research I'm reading, it's going to happen again, and it's starting to happen like in the real estate market here in Australia. That, um, and so if we could learn to follow some of these scriptural principles about minimizing the kind of debts that we take on and being thoughtful about uh, and purposeful and intentional about and conscious about our spending, that we're able to live with a lot more peace in our lives and a lot more sustainably. In fact, there's a place in the Gospels where Jesus says, um, you, um, use, it, says, um, it says, if you haven't learned to deal with money well, how can you be trusted with the riches of the kingdom of God? And so um, I, there's a spiritual dimension to how we handle our money that prepares us to, to, um, to be good stewards of the, the bigger picture of, the, of God's kingdom. Uh, we said we want to be resourceful and ecologically conscious. Sometimes thinking about uh, it's helpful to think about how our, our individual choices affect people all over the world. And um, uh, one thing that I try and keep in my mind is, could we find a version of the good life that could be shared by most people on the planet rather than by just a few of us? We've learned to live in a way only in the last hundred years that has radically reshaped the climate of this planet we're running out of those fossil fuels. And so it's a, it's a time for us to learn to be more creative and, more, um, and, and more, live closer to the land and to the natural rhythms of the planet that Creator has put us on. Uh, four, we said we want to live, live generously and make decisions about our time based on passion rather than a paycheck. Um, generosity is a super important um, practice for Christians. And um, I just want to put a word in that if you're part of this community and you benefit from, um, from what you all do collectively, then it just makes good sense that you would be um, giving a thoughtful amount to, to the work that's going on here in your community. Um, and, but the second part of that is really interesting too. A friend of mine said to me recently when we were looking at these things, she said, I've always made my decisions about work based on how much education I have and how much experience I have and how much I think I should make based on that. And I've literally made choice after choice about my work simply based on what the number or the dollar sign was without stopping to ask the question, am I passionate about this? Does this make me come alive? Does, do I feel like this helps with the, with the remaking of creation that um, God invites us into? And fifth, we're invited to um, trust God and ask for what we need. Even if you followed all of those other scriptural principles, each of us at some point in our lives gets to a point where maybe the numbers don't add up or we have needs um, that are beyond what we have the immediate resources for. And scripture teaches us, ask, give, give us your daily bread, ask, seek, and knock. And over and over in our lives, and I'm, I'm guessing that many of you here have had the same experience of seeing God answer those requests in unexpected ways. Um, so I want to name something that, um, I want to name a couple of aches that might be in the room this morning. First of all, there may be some of us here who are experiencing a money ache right now. You've looked at your finances and there's, 
there's some, uh, maybe more is going out than is coming in. Or you've had a, you've had a job change or a, a redundancy recently and there's some, there's some real anxiety about how, what's going to happen in the future. Or you're thinking about o- older age when you're not able to work and um, what your income is going to be at that time. Uh, some of us have a meaning and soul ache. The money's good, but there's a hunger inside of you where you go, I want to be spending my life and doing, making more of a difference, doing things on purpose in my life. Then there might be some of us here who are feeling a time ache. I've got passions, but I'm, I've got so much on my schedule that I'm not, I don't have the time to do the things that I've identified as the things that, that matter most. Uh, not enough time for those close relationships or for those more and more meaningful things. Well, you might be sitting here this morning and um, time's good, money's good, meaning's good, but there's a fourth ache that I think we're all invited to share, and that's the ache for global equity and sustainability. How can we learn to live in a way that loves our neighbor as herself, not just the neighbor across the street, but our neighbors, our brothers and sisters who live all around the world? What's What's a good life that can be shared by most of us or all of us? Uh, a few years ago, I was, um, I was part of a group where we were looking at how could we radically live out the teachings of Jesus. And one of the um, texts that really popped out to us was a place where Jesus said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Could he have possibly meant this? Um, was he serious about this? And this is from Luke 12, and um, Luke and Acts were written by the same author. And in the book of Luke, he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. In the book of Acts, it says about the early disciples, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone who had need. So apparently, the earliest followers of Jesus thought he was serious about this. Why would Jesus give an instruction like this? It could sound like a hard instruction. You want me to give up these things I've worked so hard for? These things I have that are precious to me? um, That's that's hardcore. Um, Another way to look at it is Jesus never gives us an instruction that he, that, um, without knowing that it will lead to our freedom and liberation and satisfaction. He has our best interest in mind. And um, if selling possessions sounds like a hard thing, then it gets a deeper question. Do we live in a world of scarcity or abundance? If we live in a world of scarcity, then it totally makes sense to, to reach and grab and grasp at whatever we can find and to hold on to it tightly because we're in competition with one another. I want you to put your hands out like this and do some of that grabbing with me. Clench your hands together. Hold them tight. What does that feel like to be white-knuckling it like that? Um, what if there was a different way? What if the real, deeper reality is that we live in a world of abundance where the rain falls and the sun shines and the earth produces what is needed for human flourishing? If that's true, as Jesus affirmed, then it means we can relax, we can open our hands, we can receive what we need with thanks, we can ask for what we need um, with faith and trust, and we can share what we have with one another. And so this is, the, this is the reality behind this message of Jesus saying, sell your possessions and give to the poor. You see it as a theme over and over in the Gospels. So my friends and I said, what if we tried an experiment about this? 
And so over eight weeks, I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but over eight weeks, we decided that a group of us would try and sell or give away half of what we own and use the money that we made to help the poorest people in the world through a development organization. And to my surprise, 30 of my friends wanted to do this with us. And so we went to work um, figuring out how to sell, uh, go through our closets and sell clothes and look through our books and uh, possessions and our uh, houses and apartments and bikes and vehicles and things like that. And um, it led to a lot less clutter. This is pre-Marie Kondo, Kondo, so we were like early adopters of this. Um, A lot less clutter, a lot more peace in our lives, um, and a lot more order. And um, we got partway through this experiment Called, we, we called it Have Two, Give One. And my friend Damon said, Mark, I thought this was going to be hard. But actually, it's been super easy. In fact, I think I could sell or give away everything I own. And in six months, I'd have almost as much stuff. Because we live in such an affluent culture. And we're connected to people who also have almost as much or more than we do. That they'd go, here's, here's my spare uh, jumper, and um, here's my three-year-old computer, and I, we've got this TV, do you want it? And we've got this mountain bike. And I'd get, it, I'd get everything back so quickly. So I think if we were going to get at what Jesus was really inviting us into, we would sit down and talk about where we spend our money, how much we make, what our debts are, and what our assets are. The room got real quiet, just like you guys got a little extra quiet when I mentioned this. And we said, why would we do that? I asked him, why would we do this? And he said, well, it says in the book of Acts that um, um, among the early believers, nobody had any needs. Those who had shared with those who didn't have. So how do we know who has things to share and who has needs unless we can talk about it? So we got together the next week. And um, we invited each other to share some of this information. We didn't make anybody share anything they didn't want to share. Uh, uh, some people printed out their, the, like the details of their finances and threw it up in the air for all of us to see. Other people held it close and just talked a little bit more vague. And it, the goal wasn't to find this information out. The goal was to create a safe space to listen to people's aches about money in their life. And I remember the first person uh, who shared was somebody I had been jealous of and judgmental of because of their wealth. Stanford MBA, two tech startups in Silicon Valley. So I just imagined how much money this person had stocked away. And when she shared about her finances, um, she was, uh, first of all, she paid a third of her income in taxes. I don't pay any taxes because I had three dependent children at the time. So she's responsible for schools and roads. Uh, she, um, she was giving, but in addition to that, she was giving away 35% of her income to her faith community and to causes she cared about. She was saving more to help nieces and nephews get to university. And then in terms of her housing and food, she was spending less than any of the rest of us in the circle. And we're like, wow, God's entrusted you with a lot of wealth and you've been a wise steward of it. Then a second person shared it was a couple. And they said, we've never looked carefully at our finances, but when we did this week, we discovered that a thousand more is going out a month than coming in. We've got, uh, we've got 100,000 in school debts, and we just found out we're pregnant with our first child. And that night was the beginning of a turning point for them of getting their finances more in alignment with scriptural principles. Third person shared, and it was somebody 
um, who revealed that um, after paying their rent, hadn't been able to pay for groceries and was putting them on a credit card for several years. And there was a deeper story behind that. This person had experienced some trauma in early life. When they got to adulthood, they were flooded with this pain, this PTSD, where they weren't able to finish their studies and, and get into a career. They were stuck in a service job and, and not making ends meet. And when the group heard about this, one person said, I will help you make a plan to get out of your consumer debt. Uh, another couple said, come live with us until you can, um, you can pay off your debt. And, um, and then as a group, the group said, we want to be good friends to you and help you with your, your recovery, but we think someone who's trained to walk with someone in this would be helpful. So we would like to pay for you to go see a Christian therapist. All this happened because we had the, took the risk to have this awkward conversation. And uh, it proved to be deeply powerful. Here was one of the other reasons Damon shared with me about why we should do this. He said, how we spend our time is how we spend our lives. And how we spend our lives is shaped by our, relations, our choices with money. So we should have, be, have some relationships that are trusted enough where we can talk about these things and figure out how can we be the most free to run along with the good dreams that our creator has for us. So as I close, I want to um, dare you to believe three things. I dare you to believe that you were made with a deeper purpose. It's not just about getting up in the morning and clocking into your job. You were made to be part of the remaking of creation that Jesus calls the kingdom of God. To use everything you are and the passions and skills you have to seek the greater good that God desires for our world. Second, I dare you to believe that you have enough. What if you adopted that posture of radical commitment or returned to it and said, I'm good. I'll be grateful for what I have today. And third, you can use what you have and who you are to do good in the world. So a question I want to leave you with is, what's crowding out or keeping you from the flourishing life you you were created for? Or in other words, how do you want to be more free. If you need help with this, I've got a resource here that um, shares the journey that my family's been on and that we've helped, been able to help others with in this book called Free. And if you're raising kids, we've got a book as well about how this relates to family life and how to teach your kids about purpose and um, freedom with finances. Uh, just as a final reminder, Jesus invites us into this life of open-handed trust in God's abundance that allows us to give thanks, receive, and to share with one another. And so let's, let's together, God, may we live in the abundance of your kingdom as, as your people. Amen.